The law is the raw materials of our democracy. It's the rule book by which as citizens we choose to govern ourselves. And, and that's actually why the Supreme Court said that official code of Georgia annotated has no copyright, because it's owned by the people. It's what we do in a democracy. Today on Law Next, I can think of no one who's worked harder, worked longer, or had more success at the cause of making government information accessible to the public than Carl Malamud and his organization, Public Resource. From putting the SEC's Edgar database online in 1993, effectively shaming the SEC into putting it online itself two years later, to spending years working to decommercialize access to case law and court dockets, to his federal court victory just last month, allowing publication of private industry technical standards that are incorporated by reference into thousands of federal, state, and local laws. Malamud has been fighting the good fight for more than 30 years, and he joins me today to talk about it. This is Bob Ambrogi, and you're listening to Law Next, the podcast that features the innovators and entrepreneurs who are driving what's next in law. Before we get to today's interview, let's hear about the sponsors who make this podcast possible. ShareFile is a secure, easy-to-use collaboration and workflow solution that has helped more than 90,000 customers secure data, share files, and collaborate on documents. With ShareFile for Legal, you can eliminate the never-ending speed bumps during client collaboration giving your clients one tool to onboard, sign retainers, and share requested documents. It can also be easily integrated with popular workplace tools like Google Workspace, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Zapier, and more, bringing even more ease to the client experience. To learn more about how ShareFile for Legal can help you keep work flowing, go to sharefile.com. Practice Panther is the all-in-one law practice management software trusted by tens of thousands of lawyers to manage their practices. Easily track time, process online payments, send documents for e-signature, send business text messages, and so much more without ever leaving the platform. Learn how Practice Panther can automate your business by visiting practicepanther.com. Now, on to my interview with Carl Malamud. Carl, uh, wel welcome to Law Next. Hey, Bob. Glad to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you. You are, uh, in fact, uh, no stranger to podcasting yourself as we sit here in 2022 recording this podcast. Uh, 30 years ago, in, in 1993, you launched what may have been, I guess, the progenitor to the podcast. Uh, it's been credited as the first internet radio talk show called Geek of the Week. What was the genesis of that? What what got you started doing a radio talk show back in 1993? Oh, I was attending um, Internet Engineering Task Force meetings, and they were beginning to play with putting audio and video up and stream it over the internet. And that was so people who couldn't actually attend the meetings could participate. And I looked at that, and it just seemed to me that one could do an actual radio show. So I went up to people like Vince Cerf, and I said, hey, Vint, 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 how about a radio program? And he was like, go for it. And I talked to several other people, and I was like, okay, you know, it's, it's a hack. We'll record interviews, and we'll make them available for FTP. But 
it kind of took off. Um, New York Times put it on the front page uh, above the fold, believe it or not. <laughs> it was like, move over Ted Turner. Uh, I had no idea it would be like a big deal, but it, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It was pretty cool. And of course, all of those uh, episodes are still posted online uh, and available to be found. I'll put, I'll put the link in the show notes for this, but I have a little clip from one. Can I play it? Do you mind? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> Internet Talk Radio, Flame of the Internet. This is Geek of the Week. We're talking to Tim Berners-Lee, who is the originator of the World Wide Web, one of the most exciting uh, resource discovery systems out there. It's a hypertext-based system, um, uh, a way of navigating the network. Um, Welcome to Geek of the Week, Tim. Thanks. Uh, It's uh, great to be a geek. And uh, I, we all wish we could be, right? <laughs> I love that clip. Uh, and, and I think I read that you, at the time, weren't all impressed with the whole idea of hypertext content. Oh, that was earlier. So by the time I actually did the Geek of the Week episode with Tim, I, I was sold. I was running an HTTPD server. But when I first saw the web, I was writing a book called Exploring the Internet. And what I did is three trips around the world to like document this emerging internet. This is like 1991, 1992. And it was a technical travelogue. I I wrote everything I did down to like what I had at the bar to who I saw in Japan. and, And when I was in Geneva, I was there to see what CERN was doing to put Russia online. And Brian Carpenter, who was running the networking division, you know, told me all about the satellites and everything they were doing. And he said, well, you know, we got this interesting little project. So I go into this dark room and there's Tim Berners-Lee and he's on a Next workstation, which had fancy display capabilities. And he demoed this, this web thing he had. And I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, this is really interesting, but it's not an internet thing. It's a local area network thing. It's something that, that they might use at CERN to, you know, find a, you know, physics document. And out of the probably 60 people that I documented in this book, Exploring the Internet, the one that I put on the cutting room floor was Tim Berners-Lee, because I thought to myself, this won't scale. It's not an internet thing. And, well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, I, uh, a few, I guess maybe a few of your other predictions uh, have been better uh, since then. I guess before we get off this topic of podcasts, uh, you've got uh, a podcast of yourself you're doing now. You want to give it a little plug plug while you got a chance here? Oh, we've been doing – so when COVID hit, I had a large travel budget because I was traveling to India six times a year. In 2019, I did 150 nights in hotel rooms in London and, and India. And I had a big grant waiting, you know, like it was up at the board of directors. It was like – $5 million over five years. And they said, you know, our board is meeting soon. Do you have a COVID impact statement? And my COVID impact statement is, well, I'm not going to be traveling, at least not for a while. And so we're going to invest that money in audio and, and visual stuff. So we've done, we did a movie called Open Access Ninja, uh, the, the Brew of Law. We've done a series of uh, video programs about text and data mining. We're doing one now on, it's called the Internet Code Improvement Commission and it's about why the federal government should nationalize the law, why, why the federal government should actually have edicts of government available for people to download in bulk, just like you can download the Code of Federal Regulations or the statutes at large or the congressional record. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to download a reasonable XML version of the official code of Georgia Annotated, for example. 
And that, that's what we're pushing is that idea. This is just seven 30-minute episodes, a series of interviews that, that we've done. But it's what I'm doing instead of traveling is, is trying to reach out to people using the net using audio streaming and video streaming and, and stuff like that. I, I know it's a radical idea these days. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say, welcome to my world. Uh, but you did, you mentioned before we started recording, one of your guests on that was Ed Walters, who's been on this podcast. So I'm, I'm going to look forward to listening to that one uh, at least. But let's turn to, I, I guess, your day job. Uh, I read back uh, in 2010 when you gave this talk, you've also got up on your site called 10 Rules for Radical You. You said in that talk that your day job is to help change the legal system by making the law more freely available. I assume that that definition more or less still applies these 10 years later. And I'm wondering why you consider this mission so important. You've been doing this for 30 years now. Why is it so important that the, the law be more freely available? Well, the law are, is the raw materials of our democracy. It's the rule book by which as citizens we choose to govern ourselves. And, and that's actually why the Supreme Court said that official code of Georgia annotated has no copyright because it's owned by the people. It, it's, it's what we do in a democracy. And it shocked me in the early 90s when I started putting government information online how hard the law was. So I, I did the easy things like Securities and Exchange Commission and the patent database. And in 2007, when I started Public Resource, I decided I would make a, a heavy effort into making the law available. And at the time, you couldn't even read Court of Appeals opinions on the internet. You had to go to Lexis and West. And we actually purchased a bunch of the Court of Appeals opinions from Fastcase. Uh, and, you know, Ed Walters has been on my board for, for many, many years. And we were going to put them online anyway. We were going to scan all the pages. And, and New York Times actually wrote it up. And Ed came up to me and he goes, you know, if you're going to spend money, like, you know, scanning this stuff, why don't you just buy it from me? And so we cut a deal in which we spent a considerable sum, $600,000, to purchase the entire backfile of the Court of Appeals in nice XML and HTML. And we posted it online for free. And it was a big success. Uh, the courts were beginning to post their current opinions at the time, but the back file wasn't there. And you, know, you can't do legal research without the opinions going back. So not only do we have F and F2 and F3, we've actually got the federal cases, which Heinz uh, was like nice enough to donate to me. So we, we actually go all the way back to the beginning of the Republic now. Yeah. And that was what, 2007 or so you started to do that? Yeah, I think 2008. I, I, I did that thing with uh, Larry Lessig, and we were found. We were funded by Omidyar Network at the time. Uh, later on, we got a, a Google grant, um, so we we kind of like you know put the hat out and hope people will support our work of of making this information available. Yeah, I've always wondered. Uh, I've, I've read and, and actually watched your your give that that ten rules for radicals talk a, a couple of times. And do you consider what you're doing to be radical? Do you consider yourself a radical? Um, it is civil resistance in the sense of attempting to change the way things happen. And actually, one of the things that brought me to India was a deep dive into civil resistance and how one does this. So, you know, this is not the same as, as the fight for racial equality and, and civil rights, but, but it is an effort to change the way government does things and has done so for a long time. And there's a lot to learn from Martin Luther King and, and from, from Mahatma Gandhi and, and from many of the others on how they conducted those long 
fights. And it's surprising how much resistance there is to this idea that the law must be available and that you shouldn't have a credit card in order to be able to see what's happening on Pacer. And you you shouldn't have to have a $300 a month Lexus subscription in in order to read the edicts of government of your state. Uh, Tremendous resistance to this, what would seem to be a very obvious idea. The raw materials of, of the law should be available for anybody to use. So why do you think that's the case? I mean, have you come to any kind of a, uh, an understanding over these years of working on this issue as to why you keep encountering so much resistance around this? I think it's the way with anything where you're dealing with government. It comes down to two issues. One is money and the second is inertia. And inertia is because they are rightfully so conservative when government attempts to do things. They, they try to do it in the right way. And you know they have a lot of corner cases and a lot of people yelling at them. And, and so they are conservative. But at the end of the day, it comes down to money. Uh, it comes down to companies like Lexus and you know the folks that do state court dockets and the standards bodies that lobby intensively to get their standards incorporated by law in all 50 states as binding you know, public safety regulations, but also want the money. And all of them have a mistaken view that they need to somehow monopolize the raw materials, that that, that's how they're going to make money. So the National Fire Protection Association makes the National Electrical Code, which is the law in all 50 states. And they think they have to own the copyright and sell that document. And I think they're wrong. I I think the way they're going to make money is by being the official provider of the law of the United States, right? They make the model codes, just like the American Chamber of Commerce writes laws that turned into congressional acts. But they can sell certification and training and handbooks and and red lines and all these things. Underwriters Laboratories makes $2 billion a year certifying, you know, light bulbs and washing machines. And they make about 100000 a year selling standards. And I think that's really where the big money is. And I actually think that my efforts are going to help Lexus and they're going to help West and they're going to help the National Fire Protection Association. But I've had a hell of a time convincing them that I'm here to help them. Just like with government groups, when I knock on the door at the office of the Federal Register and say, hello, I'm from the internet. I'm here to help you. You know, there's always kind of a, they're a little worried, but I really am there to help them. Um, My goal is to put myself out of business. I I, want to see the government serving the edicts of government. And I want to see the public safety codes that are by far the most important laws we have on our books today, right? Most people don't care about insurrection or, right. or, or, you know, voting fraud or, but they do care about like whether they can build a deck and whether their plumbing is safe and whether the BP oil well dumps all yeah. over the, the, the Gulf. Those are the laws that in our modern technical world are in some ways are most important. Yeah. On that point of, I'm, I'm here to help you uh, vendors. Uh, I seem to recall reading from you that when you first put the Edgar database online back in 1993, there was concern from the vendors who were selling access to that Edgar data that their business would be impacted and that, in fact, you heard from some of them at the time or around the time that the opposite was the case, that suddenly their business picked up after the the raw Edgar data appeared online. Is that right? So when Edgar was announced, it was going to be a federal case. Congressman Dingo was chairman of the Energy Committee and, you know, fierce, fierce congressional. And he was threatening an investigation as why the National Science Foundation was competing with the private sector. There, there were letters that went in from dozens of vendors saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, the sky is going to fall. 
And then two years later, after we shoved the Edgar database back down the SEC's throat, the president of disclosure came up to me and said, you know what? Our business went up. And the reason it went up is, you know, we had Edgar online and anybody could search a Waze database and download Edgar filings. Uh, We did a 24-hour delay as a way of trying to, like, you know, give the vendors, uh, you know, just a way of thinking they were still ahead. But what happened is if you were a day trader and you went to my Edgar database, which was usually online, but, you know, sometimes it was offline because our computer wasn't working. And we weren't, we didn't necessarily have the entire back file. We didn't have the Japanese filing. So if, if you were a day trader, you'd go to Disclosure and, and you'd subscribe to their service because you, you knew how important it was. Uh, just like if you're a firefighting professional and you need, you know, NFPA 101, which is a life safety code. It's all about how do you get out of buildings and how many exits you should have. And if you're a professional firefighter, you're going to buy it from the source. You're not going to download it from the Internet Archive. And, and that's why their business goes up when you make these edicts of government, these laws more relevant to a larger number of people. We had the same problem on the patent database. Uh, the commissioner of patents, um, Mr. Lehman, you know, actually told me that, that the internet really doesn't have the right kind of people. No, nobody needs to read patents. It's just for patent lawyers. And we put the patent database online and all these engineers in Silicon Valley were, were like, you know, searching our database. But we had another population of users. It turns out the patent office's database was so bad that a lot of patent examiners were going home, going on CompuServe, coming over to our system and doing their patent searches and like writing down what was relevant and then going back into the office and doing their patent examinations. So we, we had a huge following with the, the, the staff members of the, of the patent office. Yeah, I, I think to an entire generation uh, of legal professionals who may be listening to this, they have no idea that the SEC Edgar database wasn't always online. I mean, it's been one of the most successful examples of of a government agency putting public documents online, but the SEC didn't want to do this originally. Uh, Can you explain how it came to be that you posted it online and how that brought about the SEC doing it? (laughs) Yeah, we were doing a big demo before uh, then-Congressman Markey, and he was chairman of the subcommittee on telecom and finance. And so my buddies at Sun Microsystems called me in and said, we're doing a big demo for Congress. So they brought in a bunch of Sun, you know, microstations. They, they, they put a, a satellite dish on, on the roof of the Rayburn House office building. They demonstrated scanners. And, and you know, so I, I did my little, you know, radio is, is on the internet thing. We played the Dalai Lama speaking and stuff like that. And then afterwards, the chairman called me back into the office and he said, you know, I got this letter from these Nader's Raiders, um, Jamie Love, saying, Edgar Database should be on the internet. What's up with that? Could you look into it? So I looked into it and, you know, I was a database guy. I, I'd written a book on Ingress and, and I went back to the chairman and I said, yeah, there's no reason this shouldn't be online. And I brought in Steve Wolf, who was director of the National Science Foundation, NSFNet. And he said, Mr. Chairman, we can give Carl a grant. So I got $600,000 from the American people to buy the data from the American people so I could give it away to the American people and put it online, at which point Congressman Dingle just started raising the roof. But we learned a lesson, and I talked about it in in my 10 Rules for Radicals, which is when when they give you the green light, you run as fast as you can. So we got our grant in like December of 93, (laughs) and by the end of January, we had this database online. It was there. It was cat was out of the bag. 
And at that point, there was really no going back. Um, and at which point the congressman put his swords away and said, let's just see what happens on this thing. And we ran it for a couple of years and uh, had a pretty good, I don't know, we're getting a million hits a day in 94, 95. Um, so we, we had a lot of users. Wow. And when we said we were taking this thing offline because it wasn't our job, it was the SEC's, we got 17,000 people sending an email to the chairman. Now, the chairman didn't have an email address. And so we created one for him. We got these 17,000 messages and we printed them out on paper. And I sent Philippe Tabo, who worked for me, down to the SEC. And he showed up at the security desk and said, hello, we have 17,000 messages for the chairman. Where do I drop them off? Um, and they, they began to pay attention. Um, and it was to the chairman's credit and the chief of staff's credit that they, they called us in. And they said, well, you know, how much does this cost? And, you know, how do you do it? And we had given them a 60-day deadline that we were going to take this offline. And um, they finally came back after the chairman called the Wall Street Journal up and said, we're going to run the Edgar database. And the chief of staff called me up and said, you know, Carl, we cannot possibly buy a computer in 60 days and our internet link isn't working. And so we uh, we gave them a bunch of computers. So our computers came from a guy named Eric Schmidt at Sun Microsystems. Who I went to him and said, I'm putting Edgar online and I need some computers. And they didn't know how to sell to me because they only did institutional sales. And so they said, well, you know, can we just give them to you? And so we took this computer Eric gave us and we drove it down to the SEC and configured their Cisco router and gave them our source code. And they were up and running. And they totally changed their tune at that point because, you know, before then, the MIS staff, the information technology folks were saying, you can't put Edgar on the internet. People will put viruses in the SEC documents. This, this will be a catastrophe. <laughs> and so they were adamantly opposed. And after they took it over, they went back to their boss and said, well, you know, we borrowed this computer from Carl and it's not nearly big enough. We need to buy. And they gave him a laundry list. They said, we need a 16 processor, some, you know, machine room box and we need this and we need that. And next thing you know, they were running the the most popular web service in the federal government, and they became huge fans, and they they totally embraced it. So they, you know, we we became friends, um, and they they kind of like saw the light and took it over, which has always been my goal ever since then, is to give it back to the government and have them be happy. So when they took it over, there were some people that were like issuing press releases saying, oh, you know, it took them too long. They didn't do it right. They should have done it earlier. And I stepped all over these people. I said, yeah, this is not the time in which you explain why you were right. This is a time in which you congratulate the government on this forward-looking step and you get them to embrace it, make it their own, because that's how it's going to last. Is, is that another of your rules for radicals? Yes, actually, it is. It is. It is. Be nice. Be nice. When you win, be nice. Um, and, and same thing with ASTM and the National Fire Protection Association. Yeah. I would love to help them get their standards online. And if they wanted me to do that, I, I, I would like expend considerable effort to help them join, you know, the modern age. Uh, it would be nice. Yeah. Anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast who's, who's interested in anything we're talking about here should know that you you document everything you do uh, thoroughly on, on your site, uh, down to the point that in, in the SEC story, I was thrilled to find the memo uh, that you issued to the SEC, basically the loan agreement when you loan this, the, the Sun uh, computer and monitor and, uh, uh, you know, a few other uh, wires and cords or whatever. <laughs> it's all spelled out in a memo to the SEC. I loved it. One of the more, probably one, probably the most, the most tragic story to come out of the uh, efforts to enhance access to information over the years has, has been that of, of Aaron Swartz, the 
young computer programmer who, who killed himself after being indicted by the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts because uh, following his systematic downloads of academic journal articles from the JSTOR database. You and, and Aaron Swartz had, had worked together earlier, uh, not on JSTOR articles, but on access to PACER documents. What was the work that you were doing at that time regarding PACER and, and how was Swartz, uh, how did Swartz come to be involved in it? Well, you know, we worked on a variety of projects over a 10-year period. He's the one that got me started on the IRS uh, nonprofit forms, for example. He came up to me and said, why aren't these available? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll buy 2,000 DVDs and we'll rip them and put them online. And we did that and discovered there were like, you know, egregious privacy violations in there. I, I ended up redacting 450,000 Form 990s to remove Social Security numbers. Um, so I had been looking right. at the PACER database, as, as had many people, and I came up with this wild scheme of let's just recycle the PACER documents so every time you download a document, give them to me and I'll put them online and the next person doesn't have to pay. And Aaron and, and uh, Steve Schultz, who were working together at the time, he's now a partner at uh, partner associate at, at Wilson Sonsini, but he was working for Ed Felton at Princeton in, in the computer science operation there. They decided they would start downloading documents. And we had discovered that there were a dozen public access point experiments in libraries across the country. Now, that, that's one library for every like 40,000 square miles. So it was not necessarily PACER for everyone, but they were going to try and experiment and see whether the public might want to look at these things. And so Aaron worked out a way of, of downloading documents from uh, the Sacramento Public Library's free access system. And I, I told him on the way in, I said, look, if there's a sign up there that says only download five documents and obey the sign, you know, if there's an appropriate use policy, you know, don't kill their system, you know, be well behaved and be careful. And so he went away. And then he said, I need an account, Carl. And we don't give accounts on our systems. <laughs> we maintain security. But, you know, this is Aaron. So, okay, fine. We'll give you an account. And Mike Kyle, who does my systems work, um, you know, called me up a, oh, about a month and a half later and said, you know, Carl, there's 900 gigabytes of PDF files in Aaron's account. And I was like, well, he's a bright boy. Um, you know, let, let's see what's going on. And then I got a phone call from Aaron. And you don't usually get phone calls from Aaron Schwartz because he was all email and, you know, shy, shy, shy boy. He called up and we need to talk. And it turns out the um, courts had discovered that someone was downloading excessive amounts of documents. What, what excessive is, I don't know. And they uh, shut down the entire public access system in the 12 libraries. And they, they called the FBI on us. And the FBI had looked into it, and they finally called the courts back and said, you know, they, they, <laughs> there's no crimes here. Didn't do anything wrong. At which point, the New York Times wrote this up, right, an effort to make PACER free and easy. This is John Schwartz was their, their national legal correspondent. And then the courts called the FBI again. Need to look into this one more time. And so they, they staked out Aaron's home. They actually, they tried to get him to come into a coffee shop and they, they actually said, you don't need to bring your lawyer. Um, at which point, of course, Aaron called me and Aaron's mother called me and we, we talked. And I said, don't, don't take the interview, but I happened to be in Washington. And so I did two things. I went to the um, Senate Government Oversight Committee and I briefed their general counsel for an hour and a half about what we had done. And then I called up the FBI and said, hello, I understand you wanted to talk to Mr. Aaron Schwartz. I happen to be in town. Would you like me to like stop on by? And so I spent a couple hours in an interrogation room with, you know, two armed agents. They were cybersecurity guys, but, you know, we were in the Washington field office and 
I happen to have, uh, so I, I said, listen, I have copies of all the documents that I gave to your general counsel of the Senate Oversight Committee, and I, I had also called the, FB, the the New York Times and told them what I was doing. And so I gave them copies of, you know, our audit of privacy violations, the, the structure of the cookie they were using, you know, how they could make their system more secure, and they, they took a bunch of notes, and then they called the courts back and said, there's nothing to see here. They didn't do anything wrong. But it, it was a little bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> I mean, both Aaron and I had to go get criminal counsel. I mean, I called up EFF and I was like, well, what do we do now? And they're like, yeah, you need a lawyer. So that that was the the great pacer thing. Yeah. Um, um, and, and in a lot of those documents, yeah, well, uh, that that those documents. So we we scrubbed them. We we got rid of all the social security numbers. Uh, we sent certified letters to thirty two chief judges who ignored us. So we sent a second certified letter to thirty two judges, and then I sent a third one. These are all by Federal Express and certified mail. And on the third one, it said third and final notice, which you got to like gulp a little bit when you send that to a chief judge of the district court. Um, and uh, actually, uh, Chief Judge Lamberth of, of the D.C. district sent a letter back saying, thank you for your assistance. And when I went to see him about a month later, he, he comes marching out of you know the chief judge's office, which is this most amazing thing on the mall and view of the Capitol and in the Smithsonian. And he goes, how did you find all those? And I said, well, you know, we looked for nine-digit numbers, and then we verified them by hand. And he said, you were spot on. And so they redacted all those. Uh, other judges ignored us. There are still documents in which we sent certified mail um, saying, listen, uh, the following, you know, individual documents have the following social security numbers on this page. And if you go to the Northern District of Illinois, there are still documents from 2008 online that have unredacted oh. social security numbers. And so some of the judges did the right thing. The administrative office felt that it wasn't their job to scan these things on the way in to look for privacy. And it wasn't just social security numbers. It was names of confidential informants. It was home addresses of police officers. It was psychological records of children. Um, so there, there was a uh, psychologist that was hired by the D.C. school district and was fired and then sued the school district. And a supporting evidence, he had like a 300-page document that had the name, social security number, age, home address, and diagnose psychological problems of several hundred school kids. And that was like available for anyone with a credit card to download and exploit. And, you know, we know companies like Lexus systematically look through Pacer looking for things like social security numbers in, for example, bankruptcy cases. And they add that to their various, you know, threat metrics products. And so these databases are being mined for these these things that shouldn't be available. Yeah. And, and am I right that a number of those documents became the basis of the recap database that's that's used uh, to provide free access to downloaded PACER documents? Absolutely. We uh, So our data became the seed corn for recap. Recap came out of Ed Felton's shop at Princeton. Uh, brilliant, brilliant right. hack of, of, you know, I was like, send me the PDF documents and I'll post them. And he was like, you know, let's just put a plug in into the browser. And anytime you download a PDF document, we get it. Just like Pacer Pro works, uh, just like a lot of these other services, um, they do that and they, they make them available. And Ed came up with this idea of doing it publicly. It's since been taken over very ably by Mike Lisner at the Court Listener Free Law Project. And, and he has grown that database like significantly right. and, and does a really nice job on that. In 2020, in a watershed ruling for public access to primary legal materials that pitted 
Malamud's organization Public Resource against the state of Georgia, the Supreme Court held that Georgia could not block Malamud from publishing its official legislative code, which until then had been accessible only to paid subscribers. It was just one of the multiple court battles in which Malamud has been involved over the years, both as a plaintiff and as a defendant, and all involving free public access to government information. When we return, we'll talk about some of those court battles and their implications for public access. But first, let's hear from the sponsors who so generously support Law Next. Busy lawyers need solutions that do the work for them in the background. Practice Panther is designed to help lawyers automate all aspects of their firm. The all-in-one platform offers a clean interface to manage your matters, track time, process e-payments, send documents for e-signature, and send business text messages to clients. Learn why Practice Panther is the preferred solution for tens of thousands of lawyers at practicepanther.com. Welcome back to Law Next. For some 30 years, Carl Malamud has been fighting to make laws and government information freely available to the public. And all these years later, the fight continues. Just last month, in March 2022, Malamud won a victory for public access when a federal judge ruled that it was fair use for him to publish technical and scientific standards that are written by private organizations but incorporated by reference into federal and state laws and regulations. One of his most notable court victories came two years ago, when the Supreme Court held that the state of Georgia could not claim a copyright in its official statutes. As we return to our conversation, I ask Malibut about some of these court cases and their implications for public access. So many cases, uh, so many uh, efforts that you've been involved in over the years, and, and so many cases, both as as a plaintiff and a defendant. But I, I did. I want to talk. You already alluded to the Georgia case, the Supreme Court decision on the question of whether the state of Georgia can claim copyright in the annotations contained in its uh, official legislative code. But again, just for the advantage of, just for the benefit of some of the listeners here who may not be familiar with that case, could you just kind of give the background there and 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 what happened in the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah. So there is, many states have an official code and Georgia's official code is the official code of Georgia annotated. In fact, every bill in the Georgia legislature begins with the word an act to amend the official code of Georgia annotated. And I looked online and there was a huge copyright assertion on this thing as well as in the books. And and they made a unannotated version of the code available on, on the Lexus site. And that, that was kind of their sop to public access. But as Chief Justice Roberts pointed out, if, if you read the unannotated code, there were provisions in there, what the Chief Justice called economy class access, in which you can read the code, but you can't read the code commission guidance and the, the notes. And so it turns out the Georgia Supreme Court had invalidated some parts of the official code of Georgia annotated. And unless you read the annotated version of the code, you didn't know that and you were being misled. And I had done a deep dive in this edicts of government doctrine which which had not been adjudicated for over a hundred years it was you know it came from Wheaton v Peters uh, it said court opinions don't have copyright and it moved on to legislative codes and it just seemed to me that when it says copyright it didn't say copyright Lexis Nexus it said copyright 
state of Georgia, all rights reserved. And when we put it online and they sued us and accused us of a practice of terrorism in the complaint, which was the biggest PR mistake they ever made because the press totally picked up on that one, you know, picture of me in a suit and tie testifying before Congress, area man accused of terrorism for posting the law. A lot of people are like, what? Um, but right. it turns out when, when, yeah. um, when you press them on the point, so th- they claimed that the issue was that Lexus lawyers were summarizing court cases, and that was an annotation to the official code of Georgia annotated. But there were 22 classes mm-hmm. of annotations, including section titles that they asserted copyright over, including code commission guidance saying, you know, the section up above is invalid because, you know, a court decided this, attorney general opinions history notes. And in order to, and and they said, well, the law itself, of course, is not copyrights. And what they wanted us to do was the same game that West played in the early days, in which you got to get rid of the head notes and the page numbers are copyrighted because it was a creative decision to decide on which page to put things in the federal supplement. And and George's position was we could somehow slice and dice this thing apart um, and remove the copyrighted material and just post the the you know the stuff in the middle, and that just didn't seem right to me. It just seemed to be you, it is the official code of Georgia annotated, and the reason you do annotated codes is so the populace can better understand what the law is. It's why you know in a court of law you have the common law, the background, the precedents, and all that, but you also have jury instructions, and jury instructions are you know the best plain language description of what the law really is in the courts. Just like in the Supreme Court, the syllabus is by far the the best explanation of the court opinion. Now, if you're a lawyer, you have to read the opinion and dissenting opinions. But the syllabus is not the law. It's not black letter law. It's what the reporter of the Supreme Court put together. And the Supreme Court agreed with us. They, they, they said, listen, it's, it's not just black letter law. It's the edicts of government, which are the law and legal materials issued under the name of the state. So if West makes an, a, a code of Georgia annotated, you know, that's their thing, right? It's, it's copyright. But if it's copyright the state of Georgia, the official code, our position was everybody should not only be able to read it, but speak it, to copy it, to transform it, to make it accessible to the visually impaired, to give it to computational law scholars, to collate the laws of all 50 states in one place and provide them under a common search engine, which is not available today. I mean, you could sort of do that on Lexus and West, but not the way it should. And that's why we pressed on this issue of being able to speak and repeat the law, not not just see it with terms of use and DRM restrictions that don't allow you to print and things like that, that, that you should be able to freely work with the raw materials of our democracy because that's what we do in America. It's what, what we do in India. It's what they do in Europe. It, it is the, it's a fundamental part of the rule of law. You, you cannot have the rule of law without promulgation of the law. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was a real it was a real vindication for your position around the government edicts doctrine with with the court saying, quote, the animating principle behind this doctrine is that no one can own the law. Every citizen is presumed to know the law, and it needs no argument to show that all should have free access to its contents. Quite a dramatic uh, holding from from the court. Another victory, <laughs> more recent, I guess, is just just came out last month, March thirty first. U.S. District Judge uh, in District of Columbia 
issued a ruling on uh, motions to dismiss motions for summary judgment, rather, I guess, uh, in in this the standards case that uh, you've been fighting for a number of years now. Uh, and again, in which you are a defendant. Uh, and as I've understood the basic premise of the case, it, it is that there are these technical standards that are developed by various uh, professional standards agencies. And that in many, many cases uh, at the federal and, and local state government levels, these standards are incorporated by reference into statutes or regulations. And while the statutes or regulations may have been available to the public, the public did not have the same access to the standards, which were sold uh, as commercial products uh, in, in which there was very limited public access. So you, as I understood it, actually bought physical, bought print copies of the standards in many cases, scanned them, posted them online, and guess what? You got sued. Yeah, (laughs) I was hoping they wouldn't sue. I mean, because, you know, it's funny. Some people say that my goal is to end up in court and litigate, but it's actually the opposite. Um, (laughs) I I just want to get this stuff online. This stuff is binding law. So everybody in this court case that has been going on for 8.5 years now, and there was another case just before that one, um, and, you know, the standard body came in and said, you know, yes, they are the law, but we have copyright. And that's what we've been arguing about. So uh, we won. We were at first convicted, and there was a federal injunction against me saying so you may not post any of these standards. It went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals of the D.C. Circuit said, well, that, that can't be right. Surely, they, I mean, this is obviously a constitutional issue, but you know what? The judge didn't even look at fair use, and so they remanded it. They, they vacated the injunction and gave it back to the judge. And so we papered the whole thing over motions for summary judgment. This was an intense case, right? This was six plaintiffs suing us, each with their own law firm. Three of them ended up dropping out, and but we still have three plaintiffs. And so the judge was told you didn't look at fair use. And so the judge finally, after we did the motions for sobering judgment, and then the Georgia case happened, and so we repapered the whole thing at, at the judge's request. And then the Google API case came out, we papered it over again. And finally, after like, you know, years of waiting, uh, the judge said, yeah, you're right. It's fair use. As long as you got the standard exactly right, if you have a slightly different version of the standard than the one that was incorporated by reference, federal injunction is now out against me saying you may not post those. But the opinion says if for some reason those are incorporated later on, then obviously you're able to work with them. And so the rule the rule that the judge came up with was that that if you got it exactly right, in my case, it was fair use, right? My particular nonprofit use looking at the four factors was okay. And I was like, okay, fine, we'll take it. I think the Georgia rule should have applied, right? It's an edict of government issued by the Office of the Federal Register, but you know, I'll take fair use. We were just notified by the plaintiffs that they're going to appeal. So we're eight and a half years into this thing, and we got another two years going back to the Court of Appeals. And of course, we're going to make the argument that not only is it fair use, it it is edicts of government. The other thing the judge said is, Mm -hmm. so the other side was complaining about I was somehow misleading people by leaving their logos and word marks in. So, you know, the standard is called ASTM D1573, you know, standard for measuring lead in water. Um, And so they said, no, you can't Mm -hmm. even use our name let alone the logos. And the judge said, and and by that time I was like, you know, I really don't care about the logos. And so I had voluntarily redacted the logos. And the judge's injunction says I cannot use the logos. I can use the word marks, but I can't use the logos. So I went through and every time there's an ASTM logo, I, I redacted it and I redacted the logo of the National Electrical Code. I think that's stupid. 
I, I would have done that early on, but I didn't want people saying, oh, you're passing this stuff off as your own work because I'm not. I, I mean, and, and not only that, right. I right. didn't feel these things are the law. I didn't think I had the authority to redact portions of the law. It's like when I post the official code of Georgia right. annotated, I'll stamp it public domain, but I leave copyright state of Georgia, all rights reserved in there because I, I'm not going to redact a legal document and change it. So I, I make my position clear with a, a you know, a cover sheet, you know, the metadata, but I, I try to leave the law as it is. But now I'm, you know, I'm under instructions to remove the trademarks, so the, the logos, you know, okay, fine, we can do that. It's kind of a silly exercise, but, you know, we'll do what we have to do. So what happens while the appeal is pending? Is the injunction, does the full injunction remain in place or do you- Nope, 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 nope. The only injunction in place is the 33 specific standards that I got wrong and, and okay. you know, don't, yeah. don't use the logo. So I, I have no injunction against me. Uh, same thing yeah. with our case in India. Uh, we have all the Indian standards online that is pending before the Honorable High Court of Delhi. And in the, in the US, we've got all the, the standards up. And, you know, frankly, I'm probably going to be updating them, um, you know, getting the, the newer versions that are, are more newly yeah. incorporated. Yeah. One of the interesting things to judge, the couple of interesting things about the opinion, one was the appendix in which she went standard by standard through some, I don't know, 200 and I forget how many separate standards and, and made her fair use analysis against each one, uh, which in and itself was uh, was quite a remarkable feat. You know, going back to that sort of commercial impact uh, point you were talking about early in this recording today, it was this case has been going on, as you said, for over eight, nine years. Uh, it was even before that that you first posted uh, these standards. And yet the judge seemed to say that that the plaintiffs were not really able to show any commercial impact uh, or of any significance uh, as a result of all this. <laughs> What's the opposite? Their revenues go up and up and up. I mean, NFPA was $81 million. Not only that, the the, the Salaries go up and up. So you you know the so all, all these <laughs> standards development organizations are nonprofits. But you know the 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 CEO of ANSI makes yeah. two point two million dollars a year, and he lists himself on the form nine ninety as thirty five hours a week. Now I, I've been running nonprofits for many many <laughs> years. I have never worked a thirty five hour week, let alone you know taking a vacation. Um, the 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 CEO of the National Fire Protection Association is a I think one point three million dollars. The the last CEO of NF FPA was not only over a million dollars a year, but when he retired, he got a $4 million payout. And uh, if you look at ANSI, the American National Standard Institute's uh, Form 990, I, I think 20% or more of their revenues go to pay senior executives. So not only are they 2.2 million for their CEO, they, they got a half a dozen over 500 grand a year, you know, executives, vice president of this, vice president of that, um, which is really rich in, in the nonprofit world. I mean, I, I believe in, you know, I, I have a real job. I should be paid a real salary, but that, that's like, that, that's really over the top right there. It's like what you expect the CEO, you know, with a medical degree running a major, you know, hospital in a big city might make a million bucks a year. But but these are much smaller operations. These are 40 to $80 million a year operations. And I, I, I think it's it's not right. And again, I don't care about their salaries if they want to pay a lot of money. But, you know, let's remember something that that these standards are not written by the standards organizations. They're written by volunteers. This is no different than scientific journals, right, in which Reed Elsevier doesn't write yeah. the journals. Yeah. In, in the case of yeah. standards, yeah. they're written by many government officials and industry executives and consumer representatives, and they, they all write these for free. Yeah, yeah. 
the uh, you, you mentioned a couple of times your 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 work in India, and and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because I I, I read a, a a quote from you in which you said that if there is to be a revolution in access to knowledge, it has to be in India. Uh, why did you say that? What's what's your interest in access to information in India as opposed to here in the United States? So I, I had been to India quite a few times. I, I actually finished my my first book in the late '80s on a houseboat in, in Kashmir, for example. The the book on Ingress. I did my final editing on the houseboat, and I went to India when I was running the Internet World's Fair. I went there earlier when I was writing Exploring the Internet. But when I was doing standards and beginning to put them online, I went to see Anish Chopra, who was Chief Technology Officer in the White House, and it's like, Hey, Anish, how you doing? He's like, What are you up to? I said, Oh, I've been putting you know building codes online. He's like, really? They're not available. Why is that? And why do they cost money? And we went through that. And I said, you know, I'm thinking of doing other countries like India. He goes, oh, well, you got to meet my friend, Dr. Sam Petroda, who was actually in Manmohan Singh's um, cabinet at the time. He was a minister. And so I went to see him and I, I said, you know, Dr. Petroda, I'm thinking of putting Indian standards online. And he's like, really? Why are they not available? Why do they cost money? Why is there copyright? And I, I explained it and showed him examples. And he goes, yeah, go for it. And I said, you know, the Bureau's going to be a little pissed off when I do this. So I, I ended up putting 19,000 Indian standards on the internet. And then I, I started traveling to India. And when I was there, I would stop by the government bookstores. And, you know, the, the government is one of the largest publishers in India. And so I would buy literally 150 kilos of books, like the collected works of Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru and, you know, how to wear a sari and, you know, how lamps work. And, and I'd bring them back with me as, as luggage and, and we'd scan them and I'd put them online. And so I started building this, this Hinswaraj. Uh, Hinswaraj means, you know, the independence of India. It's the title of a famous book that, that Gandhi wrote. And, and I created a Hinswaraj collection on the Internet Archive and, you know, began buying more books and downloading books from Indian sites. And we now run uh, what, what I call the Public Library of India. It's one of the, it is the largest collection of books. We have over 130 different languages in the collection. We now have a team at the National Law School of India University. Uh, we have installed eight scanners there, and we're scanning their entire library and pushing them into the Internet Archive for the print disabled. But also, we're going to make them available to the students under the teaching exception to copyright. In, in India, if a book is in copyright, but it's signed by a teacher to a student in the course of their education, that's an exception. That's an allowable use. And, and so I, I, in 2019, did 150 nights in, in, you know, Indian hotel rooms and, you know, some in London, made six trips there. I've been working with the Indian Academy of Sciences for the last four years. We have a large text and data mining uh, program that, that is underway. Then we've published something called the General Index to Knowledge, in which we went through over 100 million journal articles and, and issued a concordance, an, an index. I think in the U.S. and in Europe, things are always conservative. And, and you know, we, we see that when Brewster Kahle, you know, is being sued for controlled digital lending. And when he did the National Emergency Library, in which he made all books available for controlled digital lending for people because everybody was like stuck at home in a pandemic, he got sued all the hell. And that doesn't mean we won't get sued in India, but but there is a realization that a $100 book in the US is the equivalent of a $1,000 or $2,000 book in India, right? Because salaries are lower there and, and, and costs are lower. And the costs of access to knowledge are, are just so significant. 
I've been to so many universities in which I, I'll ask people, it's like, do you have access to journal articles? And it goes, oh, I don't know. It's like, so how many of you use Sci-Hub? At which point, every hand in the room will go up, including the professors and the dean and, and you know, the vice chancellor, because it's the only way they can educate themselves and get access to this information. And so I think if you're looking at a revolution in access to knowledge in which you have these radical principles like edicts of government belong to the people, right? Or scientific knowledge should be available to every student attempting to better themselves. I believe one has a better chance of, of getting this somewhat radical proposition across in India than you would, for example, in Washington, D.C., where the MPAA is like testifying against you in Congress. Yeah. You mentioned Gandhi and, and Nehru. And have, have you found any any lessons in, in reading Gandhi uh, that are useful in the work that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, Gandhi was interesting. I, I've also studied deeply on, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela and, and Martin Luther King and, and you know, others, uh, the, the, the voter rights movement in, in England in the early 1900s, the, the Irish radicals. And there are some rules in how you do civil resistance. And one, one of the most important ones is you don't sneak around. And it's something I've always done. So when, when I put the official code of Georgia annotated online, I, I put the, the whole code on a peanut thumb drive and I sent it to the Speaker of the House and the Attorney General of Georgia and said, you'll be very delighted to know that the law is now more readily available. And I learned that lesson from Gandhiji. Um, when he, before he went to Dandi to make salt illegally from the sea, he sent a letter to the Viceroy and saying, dear friend, which was a pretty cheeky way of writing to the Viceroy, dear friend, I want to let you know that we're going to be making salt and here's why we think it is. And, you know, I don't have to go make salt in the sea. You can just do the right thing. And I think it's important that you state your proposition clearly, and you should do it with enough panache that it actually reaches your intended target. Because the problem is if you just send like a boring letter to the Georgia legislature, speaker's never going to see it. If you send a peanut thumb drive with, you know, like a picture of a peach on the front and the Georgia code is unimpeachable, the speaker might look at it. And, and sure enough, we got a letter from the AG and the speaker back saying, well, we saw your thing and you must take it down immediately. And so we at least we had that dialogue. And and again, the the goal is not for me to be able to get away with posting the law. The, the goal is for or, the or government. third and final to, notice to the chief judge back in. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you got to get their attention, and you know, if if they're not listening to you, then you're you're you know, what, what's the point? So. Yeah, um, I could talk to you for hours, but I don't have hours for for the podcast. And there's so much that you've you've done over the years. But one thing I, I wonder about is is in terms of the work that you do, do you have a sense of of a constituency that you're working on behalf? And do you have a sense that that constituency cares about these issues or is aware of the issues of lack of access to, to government information? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So again, if I go see a, a cabinet minister in India or a member of Congress in the US, I, I have to explain what I do. And and again, it's, it's like, well, really, I didn't know that. And raising that issue that, you know, public safety codes are not available is, is something I spent a lot of my time doing. On the other hand, I do have a constituency. So on the internet, if you read Cory Doctorow or, or you go look at the EFF blogs and places like that, they know what I'm doing and why it's important and they really care. There's another constituency and, and you know, this is what actually I, I like the most. So if, if I go to a bar, sit down and have a beer, 
guy next to me is like, so what do you do? I say, oh, I post the plumbing codes and electrical codes so they're available for free. Well, you know, chances are the guy sitting next to you at a bar <laughs> stool is probably a contractor, um, you know, plumber, electrician. And invariably, they buy me a beer because they're like, damn right. This is, you know, the way it ought to be. And what I like about my issue is I can explain it in 30 seconds to you and you get it. All right, you may not agree with me, but you, you get it. Whereas the state of Georgia or the National Fire Protection Association has to go through this big, long spiel of there's no free lunch and, you know, everything costs money and you, know, you need copyright. And they have a very tough time getting their point across. And I always look for issues where the other side is totally overreaching. So in the case of the SEC, it costs $30 to download a public re you know, annual report. And everyone's like, $30? Oh my God, that's a lot of money. Uh, standards, $1,000 for many of these things. You know, if you want the California, you know, Title 24, the building electrical fire codes, that's like $1,400 to buy a copy of that. And it says copyright, all rights reserved. You may not, you know, make copies of this. You may not give it to your fellow citizens. And that, that's enough of an overreach that I'm able to explain why I'm here at the table, right? If, if it's a complicated issue, everybody's like, well, I don't know, I'll have to think about it. But if you can very clearly stake out what's going on, uh, then, then you at least have the possibility of convincing the policymakers and the, the people in the field, the people that are actually the public servants and, and you know, work with this stuff, that, that things should change. And, and that's kind of what my job is to say things should change. And not only that, should they change? But look, we've changed them. And here's the stuff. And it's online. And it doesn't cost a million dollars. And people like it. We got a million viewers. Um, this is something we should be doing. And that, that's ultimately how government comes over to your side. And they go, well, you know, this wouldn't be that hard to do. And, you know, we're getting a lot of grief for having not, not made this stuff available. Let's just do it. And that's when you win. Yeah. So in the in the roughly thirty years uh, or so that you've been doing this, do you feel that, that I, obviously you've made a lot of progress? Do you feel that we in the United States have made progress around a, a broader understanding of of the importance of public access to government information in particular? And I guess in particular, has, has the government made progress around that? I mean, are we doing better now than we were doing thirty years ago? Yeah, we are. Look at GovInfo, which is the, the federal system, CFR, statutes at large, uh, you know, all that stuff. It's, it's a good system. Uh, you can download everything. I've actually downloaded 20 years of the Code of Federal Regulations so I could analyze standards. Uh, there is a greater awareness. So I, at first, when Obama took office, the good government crowd, you know, took over the open government issue. And it was all about, you know, transparency is, is the best disinfectant. And I, I think changing the frame to be this is transparency is good. We, we like that. You know, PACER, you ought to be able to read the stuff. But it's really about better operation of government. It, it's, it's about, you know, we saw that with healthcare.gov when it kept crashing every like five minutes. And, mm -hmm. and Todd Park, you know, sent in a team of, of ninjas that spent several months and like fixed that system. And I think government is beginning to understand that this is not necessarily about the do-gooder out there who thinks they have a right to, you know, see my memos. It's more about how do we more effectively deliver these services to the public. And at the end of the day, that's how a politician gets reelected. So um, not only has the civil service come around, I think a lot of politicians are beginning to understand that this is, this, this is meat and potatoes politics. This is if people aren't getting their food stamps or they're unable to get their benefits or they don't know what the law is, or they're being prosecuted for some obscure, stupid standard that never should have been enacted into law, then, then people react to that and they, they begin to support the effort. So yeah, we've made progress, but 
this stuff takes a long time. That's one of my lessons when I, when I give speeches. People are like, do you have any advice? It's like, yeah, pick one issue and be prepared to spend the next 10 years working on that issue because that's how long it's going to take to do it. Patents took 10 years before they finally ended up online. I, I've been doing Standards Incorporated by reference since 2007, and I, I've got another three, four, five years ahead of me on, on that one. So, you know, pick, pick an issue and just do it. Don't do a weekend hackathon and write some sample code and then, you know, go off to your next thing. Um, pick something and make it real, like like Josh Toberer did with GovTrack.us, in which he decided he was going to put every bill ever done online in a great search engine. And he's been doing that for many years. And, you know, it's an amazingly good system. So it's it's what, what we need is is more of that, either from inside of government or from outside. I, I tell people I'm a civil servant. I, I'm not always civil, but, but I, I, I call myself a civil servant. Um, and I, I view myself as a part of government. And, and, you know, in the Obama administration, when I'd go to the White House, they viewed me as a fellow civil servant. It was, it was touching that these, you know, someone on the outside that was throwing rocks, you know, in, into the glass windows was brought in and, you know, they served me lunch in the White House mess and we'd, we'd talk about what we were doing. So that's progress. That wouldn't have happened, you know, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> right. They would not have given you lunch for sure. So uh, I've, I've been peppering you with questions for an hour now. Uh, anything else you'd like to say? Any any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Yeah, it's a lot more fun being a plaintiff than a defendant. Um, that's... Uh, <laughs> And I, I hope we get these court cases done. It's I, you know, I really like when we get past the you know can the data be available thing, and we start working with it, and you know, reformat it into beautiful HTML and put it in a search engine, and you know, like right now we've got jury instructions from thirty states online. You can actually search them and compare them. I, I like it when we're able to actually use the technology and and you know make this information available to people instead of having to argue about whether we're allowed to do that. Yeah. What about Pacer? Do you think we're going to get uh, see, let, see uh, legislation, see a bill? Well, uh, there is an Open Courts Act. Um, the administrative office has been kicking and screaming, looking for, I mean, they were like, it'll cost billions of dollars to do, and right. there needs to be uh, you know special fee for power users. And I, I think we've been able to shift the business model from dissemination fees to filing fees with appropriate you know issues, uh, you know, pro se litigation and, you know, legal aid and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's right. The users of the court should be paying. I mean, it, it used to be a $400 filing fee to file a federal district court action, no matter how many, you know, hundreds of documents you had in there. And at the end of the day, you got an article, you know, three judges to write you a term paper about your issue. 400 is pretty cheap when you have like, you know, a dozen law firms and hundreds of documents and, and all that. So I, I think we're getting there. It's going to take a few years, even if the Open Courts Act passes. And the big question is, will the administrative office embrace this opportunity and do it right? Or will they just keep on fighting? And all oh, they've been fighting for years on this one. They, they like their system, uh, you know, 10 cents a page and inaccurate billing systems and improper redaction and you know, a bunch of really bad Pacer, Perl, and Java code in which every district court has like basically a different version of Pacer. I mean, talk to Mike Lisner sometime about how hard it is to crawl this stuff because they, they just keep on changing it all the time. So I, I, I hope they turn around and do it right. 
The bill as currently crafted says that the General Services Administration will work with the administrative office to make it done. Mm-hmm. And I've got right. great respect for GSA. They, they actually have done some really good large-scale enterprise computer systems. And I, I think if they're involved, mm-hmm. we, we have a shot at getting a reasonable system. Uh, they do need to fix their privacy problem. Okay. That was one of my lessons to the mm-hmm. um, uh, messages yeah. to the, the senators and, and the representatives is, is they need to scrub that database and fix their privacy problems because it's it's toxic right now. And they need to fix it no matter what, because, you know, it, identity thieves have credit cards, right? I mean, by definition. Um, and yeah. so these problems are exposed. And it's only when the public got access to this data that we were able to scrub it and actually, you know, show them where their privacy issues were. It's not that hard to go through a billion documents today and look for social security numbers. I, I don't know about you, yeah. but I, I have Google Enterprise and once a month, I get a note from them saying, we scanned your Google Drive and you have 83 documents that have potential privacy issues in them. And right. I, I don't think it would be hard to scan a document on the way in. And if you detect what looks like a privacy issue, bounce it back to the lawyer and say, are you really sure you want to file this one? Mm-hmm. And if they click the button and say, yes, I'm sure, then okay, fine. But then if it turns out there were a bunch of social security numbers in there, the judge should be able to impose fines on the lawyers. And, and I think we should get serious about this stuff. Well, Carl, uh, I really appreciate your talking. It's been a real honor to speak with you and uh, keep up keep up the good work. Another 30 well, years? <laughs> uh, more than 30, actually. I started doing this in the early 80s, uh, Federal Reserve Board, and okay. it was my first job in Washington. Before that, I did at Indiana University. And um, so, yeah, it's been a while, but it's it's been a good 30 years yeah. of doing the government online things. So that, that's been yeah. pretty much yeah. an obsession since since then. So yeah, <laughs> it was a real pleasure speaking right. with you, Bob. I, I always enjoy talking with you. Good to talk to you. I've been speaking today with Carl Malamud, founder of Public Resource and fighter for public access. Thanks to Carl for taking the time to join me today. What are your thoughts on today's show? Share them by tweeting us at Podcast. Lawnext is produced, engineered, and edited by Populous Radio. I'm your host, Bob Ambrogi. I hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Law Next. <laughs> <laughs>